everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Dolapenna, and on today's episode, we have part two of the interview with USA Women's Captain Sindhu Sriharsha. Now, in the first part of the interview, Sindhu talked about the Fairbreak Invitational T20 event in Dubai, where she captained the Warriors squad, and she also went in detail about her early career in India growing up in the Karnataka system, but in this half of the interview, she goes into much greater detail about her second coming, her rebirth in the American cricket scene in 2016. That's when she made her initial appearance for the USA Women against the MCC touring squad in Philadelphia. And in 2017, she officially became the captain of the USA Women, which she continues to be to this day. She talks a lot about how she got back into the game after coming to America and her recent experiences with a much different looking squad in Mexico and in Zimbabwe with a lot of young players, which she played a role in developing locally in Northern California and a whole lot of other things. That's in part two of the interview with Sindhu Harsha. But before we get to that, I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now the first ODI accredited venue in the Lone Star State. For more information, visit www.moosastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. Your last match... For Karnataka was December 2010 and then you talk about coming to America now as far as I understand part of the reason why you came to America is you got married you came settled in California with your husband at that point in time how much knowledge did you have about women's cricket in the U.S. did you even bring cricket kit with you or did you think when you came to California like we hear a lot of other players say when they come to the U.S. from India, they just leave the stuff behind. They have no thought about it. And it's only after they arrive that they realize, wait a second, I've got an opportunity to potentially continue my passion. So what was going through your mind as you came to the U.S.? Did you think your career was over and what rekindled it? There's definitely a bit of story in it. I actually quit cricket in uh, 2011, 2010, 2011 was my last season in India. And I only got married in 2013. So I lived in India for a couple of years. I quit and I didn't play any cricket for two years. I actually worked in a multinational company, JP Morgan, and I actually was a regular person. I should say led a normal life before I got married. So cricket was out of my life when I got married. So I wasn't coming over to the U.S., thinking that I was going to restart my, my cricket career. It, it was never in the radar. Even when I moved over, when I actually, I should say when I got engaged, I updated my Facebook account and I said, um, engaged to Cherry, who's uh, Sri Harsha, who's my husband now. And Akshata Rao, who I have also known, she's also from Bangalore. She is from the same camp as Ifan Seth's camp. So I had seen her before. She was already playing for the USA and was living in the USA. The minute I changed my status on the Facebook to saying uh, engaged to Cherry Shri Harsha MS, and then I get a ping from her. I was still in India, I was still not married, but she was like, hey, Sindhu, do you remember me? But I didn't know who Akshata was. I just knew Akshata that she was one of the uh, players. I'd never played with Akshata uh, when she was in India, but she knew me through it, Fancet, and of course, you know, she had seen me on the field in there. And I was like, who's, who's Axe? Like, I'm like, who's Akshata? Like, and then she was like, are you coming over to the US? And I was like, yes, eventually when I get married, because I wasn't married yet. And 
she was like, oh, you have to come here. You have no idea. And you're in the, going to be in the bear. She was so excited. And she was just messaging me all through until I got married, like asking me, when is your marriage? When are you moving? When I, and I had no idea why she was doing all this because I had, I definitely wasn't thinking about coming and playing cricket. I moved over here. I came in uh, 2013, uh, September, uh, September 1st, August 30th, September 1st. And um, I remember I had a message as soon as I say I saw my Facebook and I was like, did you reach? And I was like, yes, I've reached. And I, I came to US with no kit bags. I didn't even have a track pad. Like I did, carried no cricket clothes when I moved over. And Akshata then reached out to me every week. And the first time I met Akshata Rao and Nadia Gruni, because Akshata arranged for this, and she forced me to pick that bat up again. I should definitely give it to Akshata and Nadia Gruni because they forced me to literally pick that bat out again. And we met up in September second week, just the two weeks since I'd come back, had moved to US, September 2013. I met them first time at Pro Creek shop in Milpitas. And um, I remember driving up to the to the nets and um, I didn't even have a, a track band. We actually drove up to Sports Authority, bought a track band, changed in Sports Authority, and then actually went out to play. And um, no kid bags, nothing. First time I saw Akshata and then they made me bat. Of course, they were like, you, you can have my bat. You can have my pads. You know, you can keep it to yourself. And and they just saw me bat for two minutes and they were like, Akshata and both Nadia were like, okay, we found the next player. <laughs> so I had not batted and not played cricket for almost two or three years uh, when I actually moved over here. So that's how I got reintroduced. And there was no turning back once I started playing again in 2013. Now, you said you quit to pursue a career with J.P. Morgan. Was that mainly just due to financial reasons? Because, as you said, there was no support financially for women's cricket when you were coming up through the domestic scene initially and you needed to find a way to support yourself. Or was it more you just were not enjoying cricket, money or no money? I think multiple factors, but definitely I had lost the love for, of the game a little bit in 2010, 2011. I didn't know what else I could do to make it to that senior team of the Indian team. So I thought at that particular time, I wasn't enjoying getting up early day, early every morning and trying to train myself for uh, the tournaments or I, I just didn't know. I didn't know what was next to me. I, I wasn't seeing the future in my cricket. I didn't know where I was going to lead from there. So the best way for me was I had completed my education as well at that time. I'd finished my MBA. And the next move for me was to definitely get into a job. I wouldn't say the factor, the main reason was that I had to support myself and financially. Yes, that is one of the factor, but definitely I'd lost the love a little bit and I needed to take that time off to see if it would rekindle myself to come back into playing uh, again. So I, I definitely needed that break at that time. And I wouldn't take it any, I wouldn't have done anything different, like I said. So coming back over here, I realized that over here, there was less pressure. It was more a social cricket when I really started off. So I was enjoying that more um, than in 2010, 2011 was a time when I knew that I definitely had to walk away from the game. You say when you first arrived, it was more social cricket. Yes. <laughs> so what were your first impressions? I mean, actually, Rao, you say social cricket, but part of that is just simply a function of the fact that there were so few women's players, yeah. period, across the country. And Akshata Rao and Nadia Gruni, Nadia was living in the Bay Area at the time. Now she's living in Florida, but at the time, Nadia was out there. 
uh, working for Oracle and Akshata's out in the Bay Area and you've got two national team players. Nadi made her debut in 2010. Akshata, from memory, I think she made her debut in 2011. So you you arrive in 2013. They made their debut two years earlier. They're established national team players. And yet the women's cricket scene is so small at that point in time that there's just a very small tight-knit community in the Bay Area. And one Bay Area and New York are basically the two concentrated areas where there would be women's cricketers. What were your initial impressions, aside from the fact that you've got these two crazy people who are harassing you on Facebook, demanding Seriously. you to show up? They literally, actually, they literally harassed me. But, well, I think the first impression for me was uh, they were the girls who were already involved in the game, like Eric's, uh, Erica um, Nads, and they were very passionate. They wanted to better themselves. Even when during the times, I believe there wasn't any cricket from 2011 until we played the 2018, 2017. Was, um, yeah, 2012. So from 2012, the last time the USA played an IC event, ICC event yeah. was 2012 in the Cayman Islands. It's a T20 regional qualifier. Um, what happened was USA and Canada were 4-0. And traditionally, they try and schedule the marquee event on the last day. They want to build up to the last day. And the last match, U.S. and Canada was rained out. And Canada mm-hmm. advanced on net run rate, even though both net teams were undefeated. And so that was in 2012. I think it was April 2012. The next thing that happened was essentially there, there was that unofficial series against Pakistan where there was the two T20Is in Florida, which you were a part of. But officially, there was not genuine sanctioned opportunities for USA women until the MCC tour in 2016, September 2016. And then in terms of international cricket, genuine sanctioned international cricket, it was that's that very, very rainy Scotland tour in 2017 in Sterling. So it was more than five years. There was the gap. You arrived right kind of in the early part of that extended gap in 2013. Yes. And um, I think the players like Erica Wendler, uh, Nadia Duni, Akshata Rao, and all of these players were trying to keep that light burning, even with nothing actually uh, happening in the U.S. They were trying to do as much as possible to keep it going, right? Uh, and Nadia, in fact, with other WWCA, I believe, one of the academy, Worldwide Cricket Academy, did conduct a few tournaments for us. We went to Trinidad and Tobago as a WWCA unit and played with the under-19 Trinidad and Tobago teams in 2015, I should say. And they, we also had a, a little bit of camp, a weekend camp with Robin Singh. Then Stephanie Teller was part of that. And she came over for one of the weekends with Stephanie Power from West Indies as well. So they were trying to do as much as possible to keep cricket going in the USA for women uh, to keep it alive. And I think that initial years, I was meeting up with these teams and also playing the Memorial Week, Memorial Day weekend tournament in Atlanta, Georgia. So that's where I was actually meeting up with all of the cricketers throughout the US. And I was actually uh, building that relationship. That was my foundation, I, su- I should say, the first couple of few years, I would almost four, four to five years that building that foundation and trying to understand what USA cricket was until the 2015 and 2016 when when the real cricket kind of started for us. So I was trying to build that and that gave me a little bit of time to understand uh, where USA cricket stood and to what it is today. It's day and night. I mean, we can still do a lot more, but I'm not, I'm just saying from where we were to what today is, it's day and night. Yeah. You had this lengthy career as Sindhu Ashok, that was your maiden name, Sindhu Ashok, that's what you were known as in India. And then you reemerged as Sindhu Sriharsha after 
get married. That's what everybody is known you as in America, playing for the USA national team. And that really began in earnest in 2016 with that MCC tour in Philadelphia. And I mentioned you had two unofficial matches against Pakistan, which were not really well publicized and kind of flew under the radar. And that was partially by design because USACA was suspended at that point in time in November of 2015. But you get the opportunity once the ICC Americas started to take over the administration of cricket in America, the transition team project USA. Now that MCC experience, I've had conversations with people about this. There was a dual tour. The men toured New York City and Indianapolis. There was an MCC men's tour where they played a USA select side in New York and then the USA national team in Indianapolis. And the USA uh, women were playing the MCC women. Claire Taylor and Charlotte Edwards were the headline players who came to Philadelphia. And when I, I talk with people about this, I joke with them that the women got a hell of a lot better treatment because the men, there was matches on Saturday and Sunday in New York. And it was at Baisley Pond. And I was there on Saturday in New York covering the first round of matches that the MCC played. And then I was going to drive to Philadelphia Sunday morning for the match that was going to be at Marion Cricket Club. And I found out after I got to Indianapolis that on Saturday night, sometime Saturday overnight into Sunday morning, when the MCC men's squad came back to Baisley Pond Park to play the second match, on the boundary edge of Baisley Pond Park, there was police tape everywhere because apparently there had been a stabbing and a murder the night before, right where they're supposed to be playing a cricket match. And so there's mm -hmm. police cars and a police investigation. Meanwhile, about 200 miles to the south in Philadelphia, you're getting white glove treatment at Marion Cricket Club. So tell me about that experience compared to especially what you'd experienced previously in India and how cricket was underfunded and underappreciated, especially in the domestic scene, compared to one of your very initial experiences in America. You're getting to play at and have lunch at one of the most high class, high prestige facilities anywhere in North America, cricket or non-cricket for that matter. Yeah, I think the first thing was we were blown away with how well maintained the field was. It was fabulous. Just looking at the field, uh, we were scared to even run on it, thinking that, oh, okay, are we going to spoil the field? Right? <laughs> it was so beautifully maintained. I think that was our first thought. And it was fabulous to just be able to and we had got our new USA kids as well. And we were um, in cloud nine, I should say. Having not played any cricket for the few years and to be able to play uh, cricket in the Marion grounds, like you said, and how well maintained it is. And against Charlotte Edwards and uh, Claire Terra was, was just the right beginning that we were looking for. Charlotte Edwards, in fact, had a few sessions with us the day before the game. She had a few sessions with us on power hitting, which actually uh, gave us this fine tuning uh, skills that we could have always go and work on. And I think even in fact, I did use a couple of them in the game when I played against them. So it was great for us. And I, I still remember Julie uh, asking us to freshen up right after the game to go up to our um, very good tea time. And we got time to just mingle with all of the MCC players. They were so good and the entire hospitality, I think it was amazing and um, the right beginning, I should say, for the USA women to start off that way. The right beginning and it's almost a polar opposite experience what happened about a year or so later in Scotland. You go from this very sunny, very beautiful, picturesque day and weekend in Philadelphia Marion Cricket Club to I don't think the sun peaked out behind the clouds the entire week you were in Stirling in Scotland. 
USA was invited essentially as a wild card entrant because the America's qualifiers still had not been reinstituted. So it was USA invited into the European qualifier to be competing with Scotland and the Netherlands in that event in Sterling. And USA was quite competitive when cricket was actually able to be played, um, but the team fell short. He didn't win any games, but I don't think that's entirely reflective of what took place on the field necessarily. What do you remember about that experience just in terms of you arrived in 2013, some of the players, like you said, Akshat Thirao, Nadi Gruni, Eric Randler, may have been waiting for a chance to showcase themselves for five years. For you, it was four years. You get to Scotland in 2017 and then to have what happened or not happened, there was not a lot of cricket that happened. What was that whole experience like for you? See, for me, I think it's a, definitely a different journey when compared to Akshata Rao or Nadia Gruni or the Erika Renda or Shabani Baskar, who the cricket was taken away from them, not by their choice, right? For me, the choice, I moved away from cricket. So, uh, so that is a choice that I made in 2011. So when I was able to wear uh, a USA gear and get onto the field on, in Scotland in 2017, this was a second innings for me, which I didn't think was going to come ever. So I was looking at this as my second innings in my life. And I was looking at it that way. I was happy to play even a six over game or a five over game. I remember walking, there were multiple uh, inspections, pitch inspections. And all I did for the entire uh, week uh, is just walk to the inspection, come back and I did that and I kept begging uh, the umpire saying, just give us the fireworks, you know, even if we can play fireworks, we're here to play cricket because we had not played any cricket for five or six years. And I, I tried, we tried as much as possible and eventually we did get to play and we competed. We, I thought we did pretty well, but we got to accept that we had not played any level of cricket. We were not exposed to any level of cricket for almost five, six years, not playing the higher ranked teams. So going out there and being able to put up the performances that we did, we have to take a lot of learnings and come back home. So if, if we had a more games, had we done better? Ifs and buts, there are many to look, look at, right? So, but I think just being out there for me was a second innings and was a new beginning for me. And definitely um, uh, for the number of years that the others had put in, it was thanks to ICC Americas for giving us that wildcard entry. Um, so I, I guess that is how uh, we looked at it. The cricket was taken away from some of your teammates, but for you, it was an opportunity for you to come back into the game that you had given up at one point, but not just come back, be named captain. So you weren't just there as a player, you were there leading the team. What did that mean to you to be chosen as captain and be able to lead USA on their first tournament back in five years? Well, the first thing I think I would uh, like to appreciate that they um, that was the first time I was playing for the USA and they saw that I could lead this team, even though I had not played for USA before, even with the others who, ha who had represented US and were around for a longer time and have, had also led cricket, had led USA before. Um, Candace Atkins was in the team and also Nadia Gruni who uh, led USA before. And they saw that I, I, they probably saw that I was the future of the you know, USA team uh, captain. So they handed it over to me, but it wasn't a surprise uh, to me, I would say, because the past four years leading up to that 2017, I had played with this team in different tournaments and we had met across the be it Atlanta tournament or be it the New York tournaments that I we had built this bond and I don't think uh, it came across as a surprise to anybody. I think it was a gradual organic kind of a move to a new captain at that time. So 
everything happened so organically. I think uh, everybody saw that coming. So I had the support of all the players. So it made it very much easy for me that I had been playing with them for a few years. There's a two-year gap here. One of the things that's frustrating about associate cricket in general is the lack of opportunities. It's a recurring theme. Men's and women's cricket players are desperate for fixtures. But for you, it provided an opportunity for you to have your first son, even though you're, you're coming back after two years, you didn't actually miss any matches for USA, even though you got pregnant and had a baby. So this is one of the quirks about associate cricket that in some ways worked to your advantage where you didn't actually miss any international cricket for USA, but you're coming back after becoming a mother. And there's an article on ESPN Cricket Info in the Cricket Month re- recently by Anisha Ghosh, where she details some of the challenges that female players have had over the years and the support or lack of support they've had and how things are starting to change in terms of players who become mothers. Here we are, got a perfect opportunity to talk to somebody who's gone through that experience. So what was it like for you? You said you had your son in 2018. That was part of the reason why you missed the initial fair break opportunity that you were recruited for. So take us through that experience. What, What was it like for you trying to get back into training mode and did you have any thoughts about just calling it quits or were you determined to continue on with cricket and find a way to balance the responsibilities of being a mother and also being USA international captain? I think from the beginning, uh, both me and my husband, we talked about not stopping cricket no matter what. I think we always knew that I was always going to come back, uh, make a comeback uh, into cricket. But how we were going to do it, I wasn't sure of it at that time. I don't think I even believed it that I was able to do it. I think my husband believed it more than me. And he always kept telling me the entire pregnancy that you just pop the kid and go back to playing and I will take care of him. Uh, so I do not think even he just, like that. just as, as you do that's all it takes just pop the kid up go back yeah. to that's all it takes and and exactly and uh, for both of us this was uh well of course this is my first kid but we've had no experience yeah uh and I think uh I've, I've said that in many interviews uh, that you know I had the best support system that I had um my mom in fact moved over here uh from from India stayed with us for a year and I had my baby uh, for a year and helped us out because I started traveling when he was three months old. I started uh, playing, started traveling around. So I definitely needed that support system. So um, my husband has been the biggest support system for the past three years now. Sometimes he is the primary parent. He plays the mother and the father for him. And when he has to go somewhere, I, I do it. So we, we play the part equally. So definitely he takes a lot of it because of the travel that I have. But I would say that without this support system, I don't think I would have been able to make it back. But one of the other things you said was that right from the start, throughout your pregnancy, after the birth, your husband, it sounded like almost he was more determined for you to keep playing cricket than you were. So what is that like having somebody who is as supportive as he is, especially when I hear stories from other players, particularly within the Indian culture and the South Asian culture where there isn't always that support, whether it's, as I said earlier, for girls growing up or for women who are married, that encouragement to play sports. And yet your husband uh, is very, very firmly in your corner to want you to keep playing as much as possible. 
Yeah, I actually think that he is my biggest fan. Uh, if somebody asked me who's your biggest fan, I would say it's my husband. He gets up at any time of the day in whichever country I'm playing cricket. He's watching it ball by ball. If there is no video of it, he's watching it ball by ball, uh, you know, looking at the scorecards. And he's always been my biggest support. And uh, to think about it, uh, when we first met, he didn't even know that I actually played cricket because I had kind of hidden the fact that I was a cricketer when I when I first met him he didn't know the depth of uh, how much cricket I had played until I'd kind of moved over here and got married so he had no idea of, uh, of it but he definitely has been my biggest support and without that I don't think I would have been able to make this comeback it hasn't been easy in any way um, I did have two complications throughout the pregnancy I was dealing with uh, gestational diabetes which is pretty common among the Asians um, so I was on insulin for very early for almost uh, four to five months during the pregnancy so it did uh, bring me back a little bit on my training and once I got back it's easier said than done that you know you just pop the kid and go but um, it took us it took me a few weeks to um, get to even walk, uh, walk. So I guess, you know, it's, it's all learning in the progress. And, and I did mention in the interview in ESPN Crick Info about the identity, identity crisis that we normally have right after the kids and postpartum depression, which is not uh, very often talked about. All of us as mother go through it. Uh, I'm not the only one, you know, you've had Akshata Rao in our team, Sugeta now, um, Zenith, Candace, and Anika. So there are a lot of them in, in our team itself that we can, you know, talk about this. And we have prepared the ones after our, us and giving them any tips that we can to how to deal with all of this. You said it was hard. What was the hardest part getting back onto the field and playing for USA again? For me, I would say uh, then compared to anybody else, like I have said in, throughout my interview now, I think I have been pretty lucky in terms of you know, the support that I've had throughout. So that was never an issue. And I know how, how difficult it is for somebody else. And even when I walked in onto the field, when I first went onto the field, it was in Florida 2019. It was a three-day training camp or a selection camp that was called up and I was given equal opportunities and I was also leading one team having been away for almost a year and a half the USA selectors at that time still believed in me and gave me that opportunity uh, to be able to lead the team and still be part of the whole um, so I I'm just lucky and been fortunate enough to have had that support from USA cricket from my home and my my parents the most difficult definitely was physically. I was no more, uh, I was probably 20 pounds more or 30 pounds more than what I used to be. So having uh, able to uh, lose, the, lose that weight and it actually impacts on the field, your movement on the field. So you're playing cricket a little bit differently than what you're used to. So having to adapt to that is probably uh, the most challenging I thought and working on my fitness. And I very proudly today say that I'm actually more fitter now than what I used to be, even pre-pregnancy. That's, that's the amount of work that I've put in. I'm, I don't say that I am the fittest. I am not. It is still a very work in progress. If you see Isani and Anika doing their yo-yos, and I'm, I'm nowhere close, but I'm just trying to say within myself, I'm actually much better than pre-pregnancy. So I say that what it uh, definitely pregnancy helped me out is to got me that determination and focus to try and work on my body and uh, trying to work on the focus areas about my uh, fitness that helped me uh, make a better cricketer today. When you came back into the team, it was a very, very different looking team. 
initially just the first wave of players in May of 2019 in Florida and then September 2019 in Scotland, you had the first sign of change come through DT Kikadali and Lisa Ramjit, partially due to their success in limited opportunities. It spurred more of a trend in that direction to pick younger players. And you ran up through a lot of them before and mentioned a few of them again just now is Isani Bigella, Anika Kalan, Lassie Malapudi, Gargi Bogles in Southern California, Suhani Tadani, you mentioned very prominently earlier, Chayna Prasad. There's so many players beyond them who are very intricately involved in the setup. You're mentoring them as captain, but not just as captain for USA. You said and mentioned it, and they've mentioned it when I've had discussions with them, that you played a very, very prominent role many, many years leading up to that. So in terms of your role, and not just as captain for USA, but locally, this is a lot of the stuff that doesn't get seen. This is behind the scenes or just kind of happens in the shadows. People might not get to appreciate it. But give us a bit more insight into the work that you put in and that some of these players put in over the course of four or five, six, seven years that a Suhani Tadani can go from a nine-year-old who's just starting to learn her cricket and play cricket with you in Northern California to the point where she's not only good enough to get selected to play for you say, but good enough to go out and perform and be a leading wicket taker on tour in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to take any credit for the work these kids have put in. I should say these kids, like these girls, are the most motivated uh, bunch of group of girls that I have ever met. The day I probably met Anika Colin when she was nine or 10 years old, the questions that she was probably asking me was she was preparing since she was 10 years old of what she needs to do to make it to the USA team. A little small details, you know, I actually mentioned to her when I gave her the debut cap, she was asking me, what color should my, the bandana should be? What color should be the, the color of my pads when I'm playing for the USA when she was 11, 12 years old? So they were asking me questions like this. How do I prepare myself at 12 or 13 to play in the national team? So for me, they made it really easy for me to mentor them or to give them those coaching tips. I actually personally coached Anika for a few years, like at one-on-one coaching with her. Did she ever ask or did Sahani ever ask, do I need to wake up on the right side of the bed and get off the right side? Do I need to wash my hair before I go and play in a match? Were you giving them those kind of tips? No, I would never give that. That's my learning. I would never, you know, put these girls into the structure that I have been in. It's it's not healthy. So I'm, I myself will agree, you know, accept it. And I am a work in progress, which I am much, much better today. And most of the girls, if you talk to them, they will tell you that how free I am today. But definitely they made it very easy for me, be it Kargi or Mahika that we don't talk about, Lisa Ramji. They are all a very motivated uh, group of people. People, uh, the girls, they were pushing us as seniors, telling us that, hey, you know, look out for your positions. We are coming for you. And that's how confident they were. I guess it's the generation to this generation. They are so fearless. And that that adds to the, you know, to everything that they do on the field, the way they bat, they're so fearless. My job becomes very easy when you have somebody like that, when you have you know players like this. All we have to do as senior, uh, seniors or somebody who's more experienced, more, let me not say this, a little more experienced than them, is to guide those energies 
into the right areas, just guiding them, giving them those, you know, a little bit of tips of how they can better themselves. They are all technically very sound. I think uh, today what they probably need more uh, is definitely more exposure, playing higher level uh, teams and higher ranked teams. And you learn through um, failing itself. Like, you know, you, you go, you win, you lose. That's not the, what you learn every day is what it counts. But I think today, technically, they're all very sound. Um, they could go and, you know, compete technically with many of the you know, world um, world famous cricketers today. But I think what we probably lack is the exposure to be playing that high level cricket. But they are the best group of uh, girls that I have seen and very fortunate to have uh, made a little bit of difference in their life, I should say. I hope, hopefully they would, you know, take that forward. And what I would want from it is to pass it on to the next group of uh, players already. I already talked to Gates about it. She's leading the under-19 team. She should be able to pass on the things that she has learned over to the next you know, bench of cricketers. So hopefully they have taken something from us and then pass it along. You mentioned that you learn more from losing experiences in Scotland in 2019. USA took quite a few beatings in the group stage in that event against Bangladesh and Scotland in particular. But I thought the match that might be even more significant was an unofficial match. It was one of the warm-up matches against Thailand. And Thailand qualified for the World Cup, went on this very magical journey in Scotland and then in Australia. First time ever qualifying for the World Cup. But started in Scotland and they played USA in a warm-up game. And right there, front and center, you get to see here's the blueprint. Here's what it takes as an associate country to reach a World Cup. And I'm curious, from that game specifically, more so than the Scotland game or the Bangladesh game, what did you see from the Thailand approach, not just the batting bowling, but I, I would argue more in terms of their fielding and just their attitude, their body language, all these kinds of things, that was a sort of a wake-up call for you as captain and brought more broadly for the team management to send a message that things needed to change and part of making changes would be bringing in some of the newer players that we saw in Mexico. And just if you can go back to what you saw in Scotland on that experience against Thailand, what are some of the things that stood out that you've tried to apply to the remodeled look of the USA team most recently in the last six to 12 months? Yeah, I think the one thing that you mentioned about the Thailand game, and I think we still talk about it, people, all the players who were involved in that game, we still talk about that as one thing that stood out to us was they were in our ears the entire 20 overs when they were batting, or 40 overs that we played. When they were batting or bowling, they played as one team together, the kind of intensity that they got, and always you know, being happy for each other and playing as one team. And they were in your ears and it was pretty, even we talked about how annoying it was that they were screaming the whole 20 years. But what does it show? It shows the team spirit. It shows how well they were bonded as a team. And given that they all were living, you know, with each other for the past few years to build the team that they have built, they were, they literally lived with, you know, lived as a team together. So uh, we, I think that that's what we uh, kind of took from them was basically how, they played as one uh, was one unit, how happy they were for each other's success and um, just being that vocal self that they were and how confident they were when they walked into that 2019 global qualifiers. I don't think they were the favorites to win it. 
they weren't, but they they proved and they believed in themselves that they were uh, ready to make that World Cup. So I think that is what we took and we realized that, you know, coming back, we definitely needed to change a lot of things um, moving into the future, what the future definitely looks like for our USA cricket. We definitely had to get in a lot more youngsters into the mix. And, you know, as you can see with the domestic pathways that have been I'm sure we're going to talk about it a little more, but domestic pathways that have been introduced in the past couple of years, the last year, as definitely you see the influx of youngsters into the uh, into the community cricket community in USA, and you already see the difference. Well, the thing that I remember most, and you touched on it, not just the, the Thailand team, but the difference between the Thailand team and the USA team in terms of noise. I think I may have written in one of my uh, post-tournament recaps was that the USA women it was almost like a funeral it was just silence you couldn't hear anything in the field you, you asked somebody what did you hear in the field I didn't hear anything there's nothing to hear because nobody was talking it was just no noise no anything and it was a stark contrast to Thailand and some of the other teams but definitely Thailand and now the first thing you notice when you come to a USA women's match is Gargi Bogle Shouting, you know, who are we, USA? You know, <laughs> and all these chants that she comes up with, and she's she's the most vocal presence on the field, but it's infectious and mm-hmm. it spreads to everybody. And that that whole energy that that all young players bring, but in particular Gargi Bogley, you gotta give her credit because because she's you you can't miss Gargi Bogley in the field. One, she's got a, a, a smile from ear to ear that radiates across the entire field, but then you can hear her. You know where you know where she's at all times because you can hear her chanting and firing up the teammates. And so, who would you say deserves the most credit for that new attitude? Is it the players themselves, the youngsters that have brought there, or is it something that you or Julie Price or somebody else as part of the leadership group has tried to instill to make that part of the new culture that's developed in the last year? It's a combination of many factors, right? To name a few is definitely um, selectors and believing in the youngsters and changing the team together, right? We had 10 youngsters in the team, less than 18 years old or, or close to 18 in, in Mexico. And so it started off from there, selectors believing in this and making that change. And then the management itself, the support staff and uh, the environment that we were creating for them and letting them know that they could be themselves and in being able to express themselves and be who they are. And we were, we were there to just back them up and you know provide them what they needed to go out there and perform. I think that is what Julia Price has tried providing to them once the team was selected and letting them know that you are who you are and we accept you totally go out there and express yourself. So. Definitely a combination of a few of them and the players themselves, like I've, like I've mentioned in the previous question that you asked me, they are so ambitious, they are so um, <laughs> intense in self, and then they just want to be able to go out there. Everybody wants to perform uh, and everybody wants to be the person to be able to take USA to win the game. So everybody's already charged up so much. So that energy, you can already feel it on the field and it makes our job a little more easier. And I have started probably looking a lot more younger on the field because of them. Uh, it definitely you know, comes on to me as well. And uh, some of us as well, if you see, we feel like we are 10 years younger now when we are Akshata, myself, Buzma, when we are around these kids, we definitely feel <laughs> a lot more younger than what, what we are and we're enjoying this space. 
And you mentioned part of the buildup to that, their selection was the women's domestic pathway that was relaunched last year. And USA Cricket has announced the opening up of that process again for this year and encouraging people to sign up. And I'm curious, you were based in the West Coast, obviously you're in Northern California, but that's really the epicenter of where all this activity is happening. That's where the overall majority of these players were selected from. Itika Kadal, even though she's based in North Carolina now, she's arguably a Northern California product, along with a lot of the other players that were picked. There's so many other promising players out there who were not picked for the senior team, at least, but were picked for the under-19 team who showed outstanding talent uh, off the top of my head. One of the players who I think is very promising, Trisha Bima, who's a, a young fast bowler out of the Bay Area and not necessarily the Bay Area, but in the Northwest, out of Seattle, Giovanna Aras is, I think, somebody who's very promising, arguably, I would say, more as a batter. I think she's she's just times the ball very well. And even though she's primarily a bowler now, what I've seen out of her batting, uh, she had that epic partnership with Isani Vigella in, in the domestic uh, championship in Florida last year and Snig DePaul, who's out of Texas, and you said Mahika Kendanala. There's so much promising talent out of the West. I don't want to totally snub the East, but you can tell the the training and the focus and, and the concentration of talent in the Bay Area has elevated the level of competition, and that starts at the local level. So what did you see in terms of the interregionals, then leading to the regionals, and then to the nationals in Florida, that was the biggest positive in terms of helping to replenish the talent pool and what was available to be selected and elevate that competition? And what are you most excited about building forward to the second year of this domestic women's pathway competitions that USA Cricket is running? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned most of the names that we already had. I think one other person that I definitely want to uh, say that you have to look out for is Chetna Padigala uh, from... I want to check her birth certificate. I don't believe she's 13 or 14. <laughs> she looks way I hope you're not putting this that. on... I hope you're not putting this on air. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, she's an ex- extremely outstanding talent very precocious but i think it's only a matter of time before she gets picked for the the senior women's team because she's just phenomenal i think arguably one of the reasons why she might not have been picked is just simply she's too young oh yeah uh, she was only 13 when she, she played was, with us so he had to be 15 to yeah i think partially this was an icc rule for safeguarding reasons they didn't want Correct. kids who were too young to be touring with adults and there were issues with that but mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, yeah, Chetna Pagidiala, definitely a name to look out for as a, uh, a left-handed bat. Yeah, and uh, I think the last year when we first started off with the domestic season and uh, we didn't know what to expect and uh, the kind of re- uh, kind of reactions we got from the community itself, like at least in the West Coast that I was totally involved in, uh, was amazing. We had three teams in the intra-regionals, uh, spread across Seattle. We had a team from Seattle um, and LA and the Bay Area. We were able to fill three full teams and we played games over two weekends with Seattle and LA coming over during the weekends to play with the Bay Area teams. But I think the kind of skill that we already saw in some of these uh, kids that were showing up in the interregionals were were already a level up and uh, the kind of exposure that and having to think that they had no exposure yet to women's cricket some of them were playing 
all girls match for the first time against an all girls match for the first times because they had only played with the boys and which makes them a little more tougher which uh, you know i totally believe in because i played my a lot of men's cricket and boys cricket growing up so uh, i think having seen that and then picking one team from the west for the regionals was i believe was very really hard <laughs> you could pick a usa national team just from the west players not to be disrespectful to the East players, but it, the quality of the players from the West was good enough that if you pick just players from the West, you would have a very competitive USA Women's National Team that still probably would have won the tournament in Mexico. Yeah, I, I would think so. And I think uh, it all goes back to the uh, kind of uh, community that's been built over in the West over here, at least in the Bay Area, the, with the likes of uh, NCCA Academy that's been around for a few, which gives us a lot of youth, uh, youth opportunity for the girls uh, and women and uh, MLCA coming in and also doing a lot of work with the girls. And I think that is what has been a good exposure for the girls to be able to play the games with the men and with the boys and be prepared already when they come over to these intra-regionals. And like I said, the picking one team from West was uh, definitely difficult and some of them did miss out and maybe if they were in any other zones would have uh, been able to make it to their uh, the next regionals. But it is what it is. And I'm actually even scared looking into how the... Uh, next intra-regionals, we play weekend games every week and I'm having to choose, uh, we have 25 girls just in the Bay Area and we have to pick one team out of the 25 girls to play against boys. It's so difficult for me to be able to pick just the 12 because it's starting to get difficult to just pick a 12 in the Bay Area itself for one team. So I think uh, that is what has opened up for the second year now. I should definitely mention uh, Texas. I was in Houston Open a few weeks back when I went over there and played a Houston Open. For the first time, they had a woman Houston Open and I went over there and played. And uh, the team in Texas as well, the number of uh, uh, girls who are in uh, 15 years old, 16 years old, are less than 15 years old. There were a couple of 11 and 12-year-olds who were bowling to us and I was blown away with you know them being just 11 or 12 and what they could offer already. And they can only go up from here. So I just believe that the future is really good and uh, we just need to nurture them right and give them as much opportunities as possible and keep the games going for them. And uh, because the only thing they keep asking is for what next, right? They need to know, they need to understand what what next. I mean, I'm playing today in the local game. So what, what do I need to do next? So as long as we can get that situated and then we can get that uh, going, I think there is no stopping these girls. One other thing that I feel was significant that was a huge contrast to the past in terms of efforts dedicated to women's cricket was when I was out in Northern California last year for one of the opening rounds of the intra regionals and you were there. The grand opening of the pitch in Pleasanton wasn't so much the match itself. Uh, to be honest, it was not a very good level of cricket that was played just from the standpoint the pitch was brand new. The pitch made things very, very difficult and you stood out in the brief amount of time that you play there just because it tested a lot of people's techniques. The, the pitch needs to be played in more to get it to a better standard and it's going to take time. But it wasn't the, the cricket that was memorable for better or worse. What was really memorable for me was all the support from the local politicians and volunteers and other administrators in the Bay Area, which you don't see in a whole lot of other places for women's cricket in particular. And hearing the mayor of Pleasanton and some of the other council members from Pleasanton and Livermore 
and Dublin and everybody in the East Bay coming out to support this facility. And one of the people who spoke, I may have been the mayor of Pleasanton, who basically said, like, the more women who show up to play, the more girls who show up to play, we're going to open up more cricket pitches. We don't care if there's more boys playing or we don't care if there's more men's playing because the men, they've got all of the cricket fields they need. But we need more fields for girls. We need more fields for women. And this is why this is such a special occasion that this field specifically for women, this is for you. And we want to see more of you playing. And the more of you we see playing, we're going to start to open up more women's specific pitches in Dublin and Livermore and elsewhere in, in the East Bay. And that is so huge in my eyes because the limited amount of women's cricket that does get played in other parts of the country, the facilities that are offered to women are the worst facilities in the area because the men get priority. And then if they're lucky, the junior boys get second priority. And then the women are, if there's anything left over, they get the scraps. Whereas in the Bay Area and arguably in Houston as well, I, I would imagine the Houston Open for the women was also played on turf wickets. Correct. And so the fact that it's not just that more cricket is being played, but where it's being played, the quality of the, the facilities that women are being offered first choice now for turf wickets through the intra-regional competition. And also we see in North Carolina, the fact that on the East Coast, the matches were played in North Carolina and then the culminating into the championship in Florida. I don't think there's been as much women's cricket played on turf wickets as there was last year and that stood out to me in a very significant way in terms of the domino effect that that has in terms of being able to better evaluate players finding out who are your best players technically and how they're tested on turf wickets compared to artificial wickets which most women's players are are forced to play on for better or worse and instead that was something that i felt was arguably one of the most significant things in your eyes as somebody again who who got exposed to very good facilities as part of your development in Karnataka and the Karnataka system and throughout India, how much of an impact do you think that will have on the development of women's players through the intra-regional setup? Like you make, a, you, you make a great point. And I think we don't talk often enough about it is our turf facilities that is required for us to um, better ourselves and being able to go out there and perform to our best abilities in the ICC games is, is, is played on the turf. And the majority of the cricket that we play in the domestic uh, level, I would say about, or even right now, I would say about 80% to 90% is on the uh, matting wicket or the synthetic wickets uh, as well. So we do not get exposed to turf wickets at all until we actually go on to play regionals or the nationals uh, tournament and any pre-tours that we can have, we have. Um, we have a couple of turf wickets in the Bay Area that uh, we have had the opportunity to use uh, for a few games. But even that, I don't believe is fully, uh, it's a, it's not a full wicket like you mentioned. It's it's still a very underprepared wicket, very new wicket, needs a few months or a few years to be able to develop and give us the kind of results that we're, that we're kind of looking for. Like you mentioned, um, definitely, I think that's number one priority if we're having, even for the boys to be able to go out there and perform, even for the men, uh, USA team, if they have to go out there and perform and be able to perform to their best ability, we have to give them everything possible to prepare them for it. So have we prepared in the best of the facilities and we to be, have that tough experience. Some of the girls, when they came to nationals, did not even have uh, spikes. So I knew you were, were going there. <laughs> I could see that was coming. 
<laughs> yeah, because that was their first experience on turf, and they were like, okay, what am I supposed to do? And uh, they had no idea of how to wear spikes. And it makes a huge difference when you wear spikes on the field and you're running around, it makes a difference. When you're batting, it makes a difference. Well, for, for people who are listening to this who have never played in a turf wicket before, I learned this firsthand. I, my formative experiences playing cricket were at 21, 22, playing in Omaha, Nebraska. I was still a college student out in Omaha, Nebraska, Creighton, and the Omaha Cricket Club. We played at a park where it was, yeah, a matting wicket, and I had no concept. You see on TV and it doesn't register. It doesn't mean anything. Oh, these guys are playing on a natural grass field. Why is that important? And I'm playing on this matting wicket. Oh, this is nice. And then I went to England in 2008. After I graduated, I got a visa. I was trying to get a job in cricket journalism as well as get a proper club experience because I thought, oh, there's so many things I'm not able to learn in Nebraska because the outfield grass is six inches high and we're not playing on a natural turf wicket. And I want to get an experience of what cricket is meant to be like on a well-maintained mm-hmm. outfield. And adjusting to the outfields was one thing and the speed of the ball as it comes off the bat, as it's meant to come off the bat, traveling normally. But the biggest adjustment for me was the turf wicket because I put on spikes for the first time and it's a very awkward feeling. If you're not used to it, I couldn't move my feet. When I uh, initially, I I didn't wear spikes and my feet were slipping and sliding all over the place because the wicket is cut so low. And they said, no, 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 you got to wear spikes or else you're not going to be able to get your your feet settled properly and you're going to be off balance and falling over. So then I put spikes on and I went from slipping and sliding over to not being able to move. And then it, it registered with me you hear people on TV talking about wearing half spikes versus full spikes. And a couple of the club members said to me, well, why are you wearing full spikes? Like you, you've got underneath, you can screw and unscrew and maybe you should wear the half spikes and you, you'll be able to move your feet a little bit better. And so I just wore half spikes when I go out to bat. And then I started to understand, oh, this is what it means. This is the difference. And if you've got the half spikes on, at least for me personally, you can move a bit better and you can, yeah, your feet will stick in the ground, but you can maneuver them. Whereas the full spikes, I, I, I couldn't get my feet moving anywhere. And unless you actually have experienced that, it's a very, very difficult adjustment and unusual adjustment to make. And so, yeah, for the, especially for the players or for the young girls who are growing up in California or Texas or New York or wherever, who just have never been exposed to turf wicket, I can sympathize with that. Because unless you actually go out there and feel it for yourself, it would never dawn on you. Mm-hmm. And that's a massive, massive, massive adjustment to have to make. Yeah, and and a lot of a lot of it is at stake, right? When you come over to nationals, it's their performance, their selections to the national team. So there's already a lot of things in their head, and it's already a lot of uh, stress that they're already going through, and put in the mix that they can't use the uh, the shoes that they're used to. So I think uh, it's just about it. It might seem like it's just a small little thing. It's just a shoes, but no, it makes a lot of difference. And I think calling these little things out and giving them that exposure from the grassroots level is important. And when they come over to the next level, they will seem that they're prepared for a level up higher than what they actually are because you're exposing them to everything that was required at the grassroots level. So I think that is something that we definitely need to start looking at. Yes, the past couple of years in terms of uh, influx of numbers, we've done great for women's cricket in USA cricket. And what the next thing that we could do is definitely expose them to the right opportunities and the right environment to be able to make them better than what they are today. These are some of the things you're talking about with the interregional structure and the domestic pathway up to regionals and nationals. And then to the national team. Now you had the ex- opportunity and the experience to get a new look at the newer players in Mexico. 
you win that tournament, but then slightly different format, 50 over cricket is still a huge adjustment period in terms of the standard of competition you're making. And it's a little bit of a reminder of what the team faced in Scotland a couple of years ago in the T20 format. You had limited opportunities until the tournament was uh, called off due to the COVID outbreak, the Omicron outbreak, but you got enough of a taste to see where the team still needs to improve. You had a very, very hard fought match against Zimbabwe where you just fell short. In terms of the things that you liked, that you've seen through the interregional structure leading up to the, throughout the domestic pathway and the limited experiences that some of these players have had now in Mexico and in Zimbabwe, some of the newer players, and getting a chance to see where they succeeded and where they failed and what they still need to work on. Going into USA's next tournament assignment, the global T20 qualifier, which you qualified from thanks to your performances in Mexico as the tournament champions out of the Americas. What do you feel is the number one thing that USA women need to work on in order to close that gap with the likes of a Thailand and a Scotland and some of the other top tier associates in the Netherlands to give you a much better shot to be able to push the higher rung associates and the lower tier full members to have a genuine chance at qualifying for a women's T20 World Cup? I think it's all three departments, but if I have to really pick one department that the last year that I think we definitely need to work on is our batting. I think uh, most of the games, um, the bowlers did make up for the the scores that we put up on the on the field. Bowlers were actually making up as a team when we are together as 11, we uh, 11 on the field, we seem to be better than just the two of us just batting out there. If we can just try and work on a power play a little bit better. And I think uh, that's something that we definitely need to look at uh, going into the T20 qualifiers. And for some of these girls, and not to take away from what they have already done and what they did in Mexico and Zimbabwe, some of these girls were first time ever playing in the USA national team, traveling for the first time outside of the country to play cricket. And the kind of experience that they got from the past couple of uh, tournaments are going to be everlasting for them and I'm sure they would have picked up a lot more uh, learnings from them and I think as outsiders we definitely are um, expecting a lot from the group that was the first time that was traveling ever like the likes of Gargi or Isani or Anika Kohl and Chetna Prasad last year and um, that was the first time ever they were you know getting out of their comfort zone and going into a, a different country to be able to perform at the level that they did, I think they still did a lot of uh, good things that we can take up. And somebody like Lisa Ramjet, who made a comeback for the 50 overs and the kind of scores that she got in Zimbabwe. And I think we just still need to recognize this, but there is a lot of learnings that we can definitely take from this. They're only going to get better with this one tournament. If they can do this, think about two or three years down the lane with the right exposure, what difference are they going to make for USA? So I think we definitely um, have to look at a lot of positives. What's the number one thing that you want to achieve either as a captain for USA or as a player for USA that you have not yet achieved that you still want to do before your career finishes? Well, the icing on the cake would be a qualification to the World Cup. But uh, realistically, if I think about it, I think my real role for the next couple of years for the USA cricket would be mentoring these girls. And uh, if by the end of my career, if the girls can remember me as I made a difference in their career, that would be a win for me. And if that is what they're going to remember me as somebody who made a difference in their life, that would be the best thing that I could end my career with. Not the number of runs, not uh, how many wins, but definitely if I've made a difference in their career. You're 33 now, but you had a very lengthy layoff 
from 2011 until essentially 2016, 2017, it was that six year gap. So you don't have the mileage and the wear and tear on your body that most other 33 year old cricketers would. How many years do you feel you have left that you can contribute to USA at a high level? And how much longer do you want to continue for? I'm definitely preparing myself and uh, I'm making myself as fit as possible to be able to play cricket at any level, be it uh, locally, and being able to perform to the best of my ability uh, for the next four to five years definitely uh, is my aim. And uh, hopefully I live up to it. That's my, uh, that's my goal. Now it's time for the favorite 11. 11 questions, cricket and non-cricket, Sindhu. You ready to rock and roll? Yes, for sure. And you're going to put me into a lot of trouble here. I already know that, but yes, <laughs> let's go for it. I'm not trying to lay a track here, <laughs> Come on. Going back to the first times I do this, Eric Renlor is one of my earliest guests. The question that I started with was, which roommate did you least like on tour or which roommate snored the most on tour? And nobody was willing to say, it was always, oh, oh it's me. I'm the worst roommate. And I couldn't get any genuine answers. So I had to ditch that question. And so we'll start off with your favorite roommate on any cricket tour. That is going to get me into trouble because I've had a few uh, roommates uh, growing up and also now, and I think I've had uh, kind of a bonding with each of these roommates. Um, Akshata Rao was one and uh, Uzma off late has been one as well that I've built a lot of um, bonding after being roommates. And um, Kitika Korali is another one. Uh, I think uh, of all the people that I would definitely pick Geets. Because I think it was her first tournament in 2019 when she made the debut and she was my roommate then and uh, having to be a roommate of the captain then and I'm sure it was very daunting for her and and she was she was very good and she just was you know on her uh, she would go to bed very early and didn't make any noise when it was required I think she just gave me the space as well as needed because like I said, I could get a little more intense on and off the field as well. So she just gave me the space and I would pick Keats. She also didn't make the mistake of shaking you awake in the middle of the night to try and get you to watch six sixes. So I think that would go in her favor too. Uh, no, <laughs> Ved, uh, yeah, Ved, uh, I've known Veda Krishnamurti since she was 10, 11 years old. So Veda is another one. Uh, I could definitely uh, say that we've uh, had many hotel rooms together with. Yeah. Your favorite way to spend a 14-hour flight, whether it's from San Francisco to India, San Francisco to Australia, San Francisco to Dubai, how do you pass the time on a, on a lengthy cross-oceanic flight? Definitely catching up on some movies on, uh, on flight, any movies that's available on the flight, and um, I do a lot of sleeping as well on flight, so um, I love my uh, space, and I actually look forward to this long uh, flights because I have no access to my mobile phone. So I know I don't have to worry about and I can't be reached and I have nothing to uh, that, I, that I can control what's happening at home. Uh, so I think I just look forward to that break from the entire, um, you know, the outside world. So I definitely look forward to it, sleep and watch movies. What is your favorite part of the San Francisco Bay Area? Ah, that's actually a good question. I think the favorite part would be the weather <laughs> throughout the year. And also, this is my first, maybe the first country that I'm in USA, the first city that I've uh, moved here after getting married, starting my new life. And so this is this is what I call home now. So definitely everything in San Francisco is very dear to me. And definitely the weather is the best. <laughs> Your favorite cricket ground experience that you've had as a player? 
it would be Gaddafi Stadium in Lahore because that was our first uh, introduction to uh, as a, a full-fledged stadium. And the food that was provided to us was outstanding. I actually came back from Pakistan like two kgs more than what I was when I came back home. Uh, so um, yes, I think definitely Gaddafi Stadium and the pitch out there, the field that, oh my God, I, I can still visualize the whole field and it was a batting wicket. I could sleep on it and still be able to get run. So Gaddafi Stadium, Lahore. Your favorite cricketer of all time? Rahul Dravid and uh, I've been a firm like I've followed him throughout my growing days and also now sometimes and it keeps changing but definitely Rahul Dravid and off late I've been following Beth Mooney a little bit so two of them. You got to stay loyal to your Carnatican roots though Rahul Dravid. Yeah I mean he's a true uh, team man right anything that's thrown at him he's been able to do it so if I can even be that and you know be the true team man like him like you know it's uh, it's He's been a great uh, player for India, so I definitely love Dravid and Beth Mooney of late. Your favorite non-cricket athlete of all time? Roger Federer. Your favorite place to eat out on tour? We have a new favorite now in Houston called Agas. I don't know if you've uh, heard about oh, it. Oh, I'm, I'm well aware of Agas. Pakistani yeah. restaurant is very, very tasty. Yes. Yes, and there is a, there's a story to it if you're interested, but definitely Agas is my new favorite. <laughs> oh, come on, don't tease us. Once you, <laughs> once you, you throw out the reel, come on, you gotta... You yeah. gotta... So we had our regionals last year in uh, Texas, uh, Texas, Houston, right? So we, um, Agas and Suhani's uh, dad, which is Rajiv, uh, told us right from when we were uh, going from the West, the Bay Area team, when we were going over uh, to regionals to play against this Texas, uh, the West versus the Southwest. He had told us from the beginning that we have to visit Agas. Like we are going to go there for one dinner at least. And all of us were like, okay, if you're going to drive. And he said it was an hour drive. And we were like, we're not going to do an hour drive for dinner. And he sold it. And he said that this is going to be the best experience of your life. And we were like, okay, he's selling it so much. We went out there. And then he placed the order because he had been there. So he said, I'm going to do all the ordering. And we said, okay, just go ahead. So this is the entire team. And there is obviously vegetarians and non-vegetarians. And he goes ahead and makes the order. We have this big, huge uh, table and he says 15 lamb chops. Okay, so to the order. And to our knowledge, he meant 15 pieces of lamb chops and we got 15 plates of orders of lamb chops. And imagine, and we were just like five or six non-vegetarians and we had 15 plates of lamb chops sitting on the table and we packed it and we ate for two or three days just the entire regionals we just had lamb chops because that's how much we had leftovers and we took it back home the other story is we decided to just share the bill amongst everybody so the vegetarians were also paying for the non-vegetarians they ended up paying 50 dollars per person <laughs> and Somebody like Chetna Prasad and her family were together and they were all vegetarians. Four of them had to pay $200 for their vegetarian food. And that is the story for Agas. But we love the food so much that uh, that's our new favorite. When Uzi and I were there for the Houston Open, we made it a point to visit Agas again. It sounds like it's flashback to Gaddafi Stadium. You, you put on your two kilos just from the visit to Agas before you went back to the Bay Area. <laughs> 
No. It was just lamb chops. It's just meat, protein. That's what I will qualify it as. <laughs> Your favorite beverage? Don't do any sodas or anything. I haven't had in many years now, but on a rest day or right after the tournament, I do enjoy my wine. So I would say red wine. Red wine. Do you have a specific red wine? Malbec is my favorite. Um, and also, you know, Shiraz sometimes. I definitely write, uh, like red wine over white any day. Do you have a, a particular favorite region where you get your Malbec or Shiraz? Are, are you a California loyalist? Do you like the Argentinian ones? South Africa? Where do you get your uh, Malbec and your Shiraz? I, I actually am an explorer. I try everything new every time I go. I am not very loyal. In fact, if the in the menu I see California, I, I prefer not to go for it because you know, I want to try other regions. Uh, Argentina has been very good. I feel that Argentina wines are good. Um, so I'm an explorer in comes, when it comes to wine. So I go for anything not non-California so far. Your favorite pizza topping? Alapinos. Your favorite movie of all time? Not a few, but I think I'll pick Pursuit of Happiness. Are you still uh, a Will Smith fan after what happened at the Oscars? Because <laughs> that, well, that did not look like the Pursuit of Happiness to what he did to Chris Rock. I'll tell you that much. Correct. I, I, I do agree. But, you know, we'll let the Oscar, you know, make those comments and we'll keep it at that. <laughs> Last but not least, your favorite show to binge watch, whether it's Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Paramount Plus, any other streaming service or DVD box set. What is your binge watching TV option du jour? I have a lot. I, I do watch a lot of series because I'm one of those person who likes TV running when I'm working so uh, during my full-time job I have the TV on all the time but off late I've been watching One Tree Hill uh, but for the fifth time probably I've watched Grey's Anatomy a few times and off late my favorite definitely is Handmade from Hulu and This Is Us from uh, NBC. How many of those are, are options that you watch and how many of those are the options that your teenage teammates have uh, spurred you on to? I actually got Gates onto One Tree Hill and uh, Gilmore Girls. Uh, she watched Gilmore Girls, One Tree Hill. I even tried getting Anika onto One Tree Hill. So I have, I'm the one who's been giving them these teenage ones then. Don't believe that I'm the one putting them on TV. I hope the parents are not looking, you know, listening to this. <laughs> Gilmore Girls, that was, yeah, that was when, when the, both of us were, were growing up, that was, that was the end thing that was on. Well, I have stories for everything. So when I first moved over to the U.S. and I think the well, first few uh, weeks, I was trying to see how do I fit into this new culture, right? Because the first thing, I'm an Indian. Uh, and I was born and brought up there and uh, I had not been exposed to any kind of Western life because I'd never traveled outside. Of, I had traveled outside of India, but not outside of Asia. So it was definitely a new beginning for me. And uh, my husband was, and I was not even working when I first moved over because of the visa, visa issue. So I happened to Google and just say, what, what is the best way to uh, learn about USA and USA's culture? And one of the things that was put up on that is watch TV series and it had mentioned a few of the TV series and Gilmore Girls was one of them, One Tree Hill and um, Grey's Anatomy Scandal. So all of this was kind of saying that you'll try and understand how uh, what is USA culture. So that was one of the way I learned about USA 
and their language, I should say, and teenage life and how how really everybody grows up in USA. So I should say that that's why I got into all the series. I sure hope that's not how everybody grows up in USA. I don't know. That's <laughs> well, fiction I mean, series TV is known, <laughs> you know, to exaggerate things. I, I'm not going to you know, get my son to grow up that way, but at least, you know, it gave, it gave me a good uh, understanding of to what US is and the language, definitely um, learning the language as well. Yeah. Today, are you more of a Rory or a Lorelei? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, I think I'm a more Rory. More Rory. I mean, I probably moved over here, could have been a more Lorelai, but I think, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still a Rory. I think I, I'm a lot more structured like her. I know what I want. I've always known what I wanted to do in life and not as much as an adventure like her mom, Lorelai. And, you know, yeah, definitely Rory. <laughs> Does Rory have a list of 22 things that she's pared down to eat, though? This is uh <laughs> <laughs> you're going to use that throughout my <laughs> interview but yeah uh, that was my vulnerable moment and I think something that I've learned in my 2020 uh, 2020 mental um, training uh, sessions is having to accept and be able to be vulnerable about yourself actually makes you more confident as a person and I think um, definitely that has helped and if somebody can pick this up in this interview and learn something out of this interview I would say you know uh, don't be as structured as you are. Take life as easy as possible and just, you know, go out there, see ball, hit ball. <laughs> That's the kind of attitude it should be when you get onto the field. USA Women's National Team Captain Sindhu Sriharsha. Sindhu, thank you so much for all this time that you've given me and anybody else watching, listening on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. We'll give you the final word. Anything else you want to say about your cricket journey or about you personally that you haven't discussed that you feel people out there should know about you? I think we've explored the years, even I haven't explored about myself in a few uh, few years now. So uh, thank you for taking me back in, uh, to uh, when I was in my teens. And I think definitely a note for you is uh, definitely the amount of uh, um, that you have, you cover USA cricket and associate level cricket in particularly USA and how you support us has been immense. And uh, you do a wonderful job for us. And even on your pod podcast, I'm probably the sixth sixth woman cricketer to come on your podcast so I think you've ha I've always maintained that uh, to give us the equal opportunities that you have been providing to women's cricket all throughout the USA cricket thank you for that and uh, I'm sure everybody even all the girls are you know very thankful to you for that well, thanks again to Sindhu Sriharsha for a fantastic interview and keep your eyes peeled for the USA women's team as they embark on T20 World Cup qualifying journey. They advanced as the champions out of the Americas regional qualifier in Mexico last October and they've got a global qualifier coming up ahead of the 2023 Women's T20 World Cup. I want to remind everybody that you can also subscribe to the podcast on Patreon. All the patriots who help make the podcast happen on a week-to-week -week basis, I appreciate your support. And I also want to remind everybody you can get the latest episodes by subscribing on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, as well as YouTube if you're interested in the video version. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Dolphin. reminding everybody, God bless America and God bless American cricket. Yeah.